I'm Gavin Wood, and you're listening to The Changelog. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Changelog, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 222, and today, Jared and I are talking to Gavin Wood about cryptocurrency, Ethereum, and this big world of unregulated digital currency. Gavin is the founder of Ethereum, the creator of the Solidity contract language, and the founder of ETHCore, a company that created Parity, an open source Ethereum client. We've got two sponsors today, Code School and Rollbar. Our first sponsor of the show is our friends at Code School. And if you want to learn something new, a proven method is to learn by doing. And that's exactly the way Code School works. You learn to program by doing with hands on courses. Code School's courses are organized into paths based on technologies like HTML and CSS, JavaScript, hot topics like React and Angular, Ruby, Python, .NET, iOS, Git, databases, and even electives that take you off the beaten path. Let's say you want to learn React. You can start level one of Code School's React course, which begins with a quick video lesson on React components. After the video, you get hands-on practice building with components using in-browser coding challenges. There's no hassle, no setup, just learning. And when you sign up for Code School, use our special URL, codeschool.com slash changelog. That'll save you $10 per month, normally $29 a month. Now it's just 19. Enjoy that. Once again, codeschool.com slash changelog. And now onto the show. All right, we're here today. Jared, a fun show. Gavin yes. Wood joining us today from, uh, was it ETHCore? Is that right? ETHCore, that's right. ETHCore. And we've never had a conversation about cryptocurrency on this show yet, Jared. So like, this is a deep subject. Where do we begin? Well, I think we should begin learning a little bit about Gavin. Gavin, first of all, thanks for joining us. And um, Gavin, give us a little bit of your backstory. Tell us about who you are, where you're coming from. And then we'll probably get some term definitions going first, just so we have a common vocabulary. But uh, first of all, welcome to the show and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I've been coding since probably around the age of seven or eight. I can't remember exactly when um, on an old uh, 8-bit, uh, barely supported computer with no games, which kind of led me to uh, the necessity for actually coding. I, I, I did school, I actually made a few games then, and I actually ended up um, um, publishing one of them in a, in a magazine at the time, which was, which was kind of nice. Um, university I got to, and I did a, a master's in, in computing and eventually a PhD, um, uh, which uh, was specialized in music visualization, uh, an interesting subject in and of itself. Um, I spent a short stint in the games industry, uh, working with a company called Frontier Development, who uh, some of the older listeners probably uh, remember as uh, uh, Elite, one of the, uh, well, the original 8-bit space um, trading game, um, which was pretty enjoyable. And uh, I left there to go and do some consulting work uh, on and off. Um, so I worked for Microsoft Research for a while, doing some of their um, uh, more advanced um, kind of API-driven projects, uh, working on things like video synthesis and uh, embedded domain specific languages. And um, after a couple of uh, startups, I ended up getting to uh, Ethereum. I met up with Vitalik uh, back in late uh, 2013 and um, started coding the C++ implementation, um, which was kind of more or less operational um, about a month later. 
and is probably fairly stated as being the first working implementation in that it's the first one that could actually send transactions between machines and, uh, and allow you to, um, uh, to run programs on the, um, the Ethereum virtual machine. You mentioned a name there, Vitalik. He's the uh, inventor and co-creator of Ethereum, right? That's exactly right, yeah. Okay. And so you met him where? Um, we actually first met in Miami um, back for the, uh, for the Bitcoin uh, conference then. We chatted a little in the previous December um, in uh, 2013 and then uh, finally met in Miami. Are you, are you guys proximity-wise close together, like in terms of like geographics or...? Um, we both moved around a lot during that time. So, um, we did spend, uh, a few months quite close to each other, sort of touring, um, America, um, but by and large, um, uh, we, we kind of both moving around generally different places, occasionally bumping into each other. Gavin, on your website, you say that you're a free trust technologist. Can you give us a little bit of what that means? Um, yeah, I'll try my best. I've, I've been asked this question like numerous times and I, <laughs> I think I generally give different answers each one and I'm not sure any of them are particularly good. Um, so when, when we say free trust, really what we're talking about is this notion that um, there are machines and organizations and individuals with an elevated trust rating in the world, let's say. So when we uh, interact with a bank or with a government, um, we, we sort of innately trust them. In the case of a government, we more or less have to trust them because we're not given any choice. Um, and the same is sort of true for many of the institutions. Um, and these guys form kind of nexuses. They form kind of um, um, very particular uh, points in the, society, in the fabric of society um, in that we can go to them for our th these services. Um, we can't go to anybody else. It's not like I can do my banking with... Um, uh, with my best friend who I actually do trust. So when we're talking about trying to architect systems like financial systems, to take a poignant example, um, we could architect these in the way that they've always been architected, sort of server client where the server is trusted and the client isn't. Um, and that's what we've done so far. Or we can architect them in what I would call a trust-free fashion, where there isn't really a trusted server there isn't really a sort of trusted organization. There's just um, uh, peers, and peers verify what each other says um, by virtue of sort of knowing enough information that they actually can. Um, so if you look at Bitcoin, um, the only reason Bitcoin really works is that all of the nodes on the network don't have to trust the other nodes. They only need to trust themselves. If they had to trust some other nodes, then it wouldn't really be trust-free. I think that's a pretty good explanation. So. Speaking of nodes on the network and financial systems, let's dig a little bit into Ethereum just at a top level, maybe explain some jargon, but I think what might be useful for your sake, Gavin, is to give a little bit of Adam and Mai's background with regard to cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, just so you know, you know where we stand in terms of understanding. And I'll just let you know that our audience is very technical. We're developers, we're hackers. Some of us may be, you know, cryptocurrency day traders, but you also have those that are more like Adam and myself, uh, casually following along or perhaps not following along at all. But we all pretty much know what Bitcoin is and understand how it works, you know, maybe at a, at a high level. Give us Ethereum, the elevator pitch in light of that level of background, and then we'll go into helping clarify a few of the terms here next. Okay. Um, so Ethereum is programmable money. So Bitcoin is 
is money, more or less, on the um, on, on the internet, magic internet money, as it's sometimes called. <laughs> right. Um, well, Bit uh, Ethereum is is programmable money, so it's it's doing the same thing. It's still magic internet money, but this money can have particular um, software attached to it, particular conditions, or particular logic. Um, it can even have storage attached to it, so money can remember some sort of history, can remember what's happened to itself, and it can do different things dependent on that memory. Um, so that's really what we're talking about with Ethereum. Now, mm-hmm. it could also be described as a as a, a decentralized application platform. It could be right. described as a smart contract platform. But at the end of the day, probably the, the thing that makes the most sense um, to, to, to people is the notion that it's money that can have program software um, installed actually in it. So to lay out a few pieces of the puzzle here, we have Ethereum, the uh, platform, which is a, a application platform. You have Ether, which, and you can just correct me any point that I missed up here. Ether is the, uh, the currency, the store of value. And then you have Solidity, which I believe is, is the programming languages that you use to develop this programmable money. And then we have uh, one aspect of the Ethereum atmosphere or ecosystem called the DAO or the DAO, um, which is often brought up, but not necessarily the same thing. So can you help me with those pieces and maybe explain them better than I can? Sure. So Ethereum is the, um, is the, is the whole sort of, uh, the whole deal. Ethereum is often used to mean the ecosystem or the network or the technology. Um, and in some sense, it's, you know, it, it's all three. Mm-hmm. Ether is very specifically the currency. So it's this notion of this token uh, that exists on a decentralized peer-based network uh, that people can own and pass between each other. Um, the Ether is a, a kind of special currency or a special token in that it can be used to pay for computation services on the Ethereum network. The Solidity is indeed one of several languages that can be used um, to encode contracts, the program contracts. And these contracts, when we say contracts, what we're actually meaning is the software that, uh, that is attached to Ether, that is attached to, this, to, to the money, to the currency. Um, now, when we've got, I should also introduce another term called the EVM. So the EVM is the Ethereum virtual machine. And this is in a very similar way to the Java virtual machine and Java. This relates to Solidity in that it's, um, it, it's the ultimate sort of backend uh, architecture that the language gets compiled to. Um, finally, the DAO. So the DAO is a very particular uh, bit of software that was placed on Ethereum. Um, so it's a contract. In fact, it's a set of contracts. Um, and it's notably had a bug in it, which, which cost uh, quite a lot of people, quite a lot of stress. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very good. Well, that's helping clarify things for me, at least. Let's talk about it in light of Bitcoin. So you said Bitcoin is this magical internet money and Ethereum is this magical and programmable uh, internet money. Why the need for Ethereum when Bitcoin existed? Could we not make Bitcoin programmable or could we not layer on top of Bitcoin? Yeah, um, I mean, other um, systems have um, have attempted this. So um, if you look at, for example, um, Omni, uh, nay Mastercoin um, or Counterparty, um, they've they've attempted to actually layer on top of Bitcoin, um, and they've uh, it, it's difficult. Um, Bitcoin really wasn't designed to be a, a base layer um, of ultimately multiple protocols. 
Um, and so it's sort of trying to, I think Vitalik actually coined the phrase, it's like trying to implement HTTP over SMTP. It doesn't mm-hmm. quite work. Um, the, uh, the alternative, which is to sort of try and build Bitcoin out into something much more like Ethereum, I think is, is possible. But then you've got the issue of governance. Uh, who decides how the Bitcoin protocol should evolve over time? Um, and being a, an entirely decentralized sort of peer-to-peer um, system, there is really no, no governance system in place to make that decision. And as such, um, what we've seen over the, over the months and years is that Bitcoin actually is relatively stable, some might say, or stagnant, others might say. Mm. Um, either way, not significant change is very difficult to, to make to, to Bitcoin, basically because you require um, everybody's um, acceptance before they can go in. Right. So the reason why I first uh, got interested in Ethereum, it was thanks to uh, Fred, I think, Airsam is how you say his last name, the CEO of Coinbase. Mm-hmm. Last spring, he wrote a post, which we'll link up in the show notes, called Ethereum is the Forefront of Digital Currency. And in that article, he lays out that basically Bitcoin is hard to program and Ethereum is built to be programmed. And that's the, the major difference. It's kind of like tacking something on later or using it as one of your founding principles of design. Um, you're always going to be able to do it better when you start from the very beginning. You think, is that a fair characterization? Yes, um, I, I would say so. And um, that's not to say that Ethereum is, uh, is sort of amazing in every respect, but rather that um, for this one particular um, um, feature, um, Ethereum did very much have that built into the design. And so because of that, the, the languages, the solidity and these other ways that you go about writing programs on Ethereum or for Ethereum are more like higher level languages, scripting languages, as opposed to perhaps you know, lower level C or you know, assembly. I don't know what you write Bitcoin uh, applications in. And is that a, a good way of thinking about it? We have kind of the scripting level of Ethereum, whereas Bitcoin is kind of like a lower level language. Um, I, this, this is a little more sort of interesting. Um, both Bitcoin and Ethereum have the notion of, of scripting language. In fact, before, um, in the very early editions of the Ethereum white paper, um, what we now call the EVM, or the EVM opcodes um, mm. were called EtherScript ES. Uh, now, I actually made the alteration to EVM uh, because I felt it, it very much um, uh, recognized the fact that we were actually creating a virtual machine um, rather than actually attempting to create a scripted language. And as such, I did not believe at the time that we were en- going to end up programming um, scripts as it were, uh, using the using these opcodes or these scripting um, um, atoms, uh, but rather uh, that we were going to be creating higher level languages which would compile down to these opcodes. Um, and so the EVM um, sort of opcode notions um, and terminology made a lot more sense than the EtherScript ones. Um, now that's a, that's how it did play out, unsurprisingly. But it's, I think it's unfair to characterize that, um, uh, that the languages are necessarily kind of high level um, as, opposed to the, uh, as opposed to Bitcoin. I think in principle, you could create a high level language and have it compiled down to the Bitcoin opcodes. Of course, it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be a great language because Bitcoin doesn't support um, things like uh, looping. But, uh, you know, in principle, there could be some, um, uh, some higher level language applied to it. Uh, similarly with Ethereum, uh, the first language I created um, for uh, programming contracts uh, was LLL, the, uh, the low-level language or the Lisp-like language. 
um, which uh, very much uh, it was indeed very low level. You tended to code with uh, with opcodes themselves, but it allowed you to do so in a way that was a little more um, useful, <laughs> convenient. Right, so. right. So you've said you said contracts there, and you mentioned smart contracts previously, and perhaps that's a term that we haven't quite uh, explicitly stated how that fits into the equation. And it sounds like smart contracts are kind of the end result of the programming that you do. Can you explain smart contracts and what that means? Yeah. So um, smart contracts are something that uh, Nick Zabo wrote uh, something uh, somewhat about in the early 90s. Um, and it's basically the idea that um, you can have uh, contracts which are written in English or, or whatever the language of the country is and are, are sort of um, executed in terms of a, a court, um, uh, ultimately, and, um, and lawyers and judges. Um, or you can have uh, the same sort of concepts, the same sort of agreements, but codified in a machine-readable fashion and um, ultimately executed by, by computers. What Ethereum does is it provides a platform for these smart contracts. So it provides a means of um, like codifying uh, what we would normally see in a sort of proper legal context, uh, context and placing it into a computer program. Now. Really, when we talk about contracts on the Ethereum platform, we're actually just talking about very basic software, right? And any programmer would come to it and they would recognize it as being software. Um, so it's not that they actually look like contracts, but rather it's more about the intent. Um, these things are intended to be uh, to govern the use of, uh, or to govern the, the, the meaning of money and, and cash flows. And so in that sense, um, they're, they're contractual agreements between parties. So they're, they're basically meant to be computer programs that govern uh, the dynamics of value. Computer programs that govern the dynamics of value. And as we'll find as we get deeper in this conversation, there seems to be a divide uh, in the Ethereum community and in the, the cryptocurrency community over uh, the idealist side of that, which is that the program is the final say, because that's what the agreement is, versus... Uh, what you might call the pragmatic look at it, which is that the program is supposed to re represent the agreement, but programs have defects and bugs, as we've found out, and so it's it's less black and white. But before that, let's let's tee this up, and then we'll take our first break. So we have smart contracts; we can program them uh, with this Solidity programming language or set of languages, and run these things on the Ethereum virtual machine. But the question that comes to my mind, I think the one that's interesting to our audience so much as developers is like, that sounds great and all, but like, what can I build? Like, what does this open up? What are some applications that now I can create using this that I couldn't create uh, previously? So don't answer that, Gavin. We'll take a break and you can answer it on the other side. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Adam Stukoviak here, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog, and I'm talking to a Rollbar customer. Rollbar puts errors in their place. Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Check them out. Get 90 days of the bootstrap plan totally for free. I had a conversation with Paul Bigger, the founder of CircleCI, and he talked deeply about how they use Rollbar and how important that tool is to their developers. Take a listen. 
One of the key parts about doing continuous delivery, you don't just have to test your software, but you have to constantly keep track of it. You're going to be doing deploys 10 times a day or 20 times a day, and you have to know that each deploy works, and the way to do that is to have really good monitoring. And Rollbar is, is literally the thing that you need to do that monitoring. You need to make sure that every time you deploy, you're going to get an alert if something goes wrong, and that's exactly what Rollbar does for, for CircleCI. So obviously CircleCI is important to your customers. You shouldn't have errors, you shouldn't have bugs. And the purpose of a CI is continuous delivery, obviously, but getting your customer's code to production in a fast manner that's tested and all the necessary things a CI provides. Tell me how important Rollbar is to your team and your organization. We operate at serious scale and literally the first thing we do when we create a new service is, is we install Rollbar in it. Like we, we need to have that visibility uh, and without that visibility it would be impossible to run at the scale we do and certainly with the number of people that we have. Like we're a relatively small team operating a major service and without the visibility that Rollbar gives us into our exceptions, it just, it just wouldn't be possible. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate your time. So listeners, we have a special offer for you. Go to rollbar.com slash changelog, sign up, get the bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked totally for free. Give Rollbar a try today. Head over to rollbar.com slash changelog. Right, we are back with Gavin Wood talking about cryptocurrencies in general and Ethereum in particular. Gavin, I teed up before the break that I'm interested in what are the kind of things that can be built on this platform and maybe perhaps uh, just as interesting things that have been built or are being built. What are some use cases? Where does this really fit in where we can take advantage of it as developers? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question. It's the funny thing is that we're not creating um, a new language, as it were. Um, we're creating a new kind of computer. Um, so up until now, computers have been very much physically localized, which means that anybody who's sat near to that particular physical local um, space um, has in some sense an advantage over what the computer's going to do. Um, now, we call this basically administration or sysadmin or DevOps or whatever. Um, and it seems like a, a, an obvious thing. It's like, well, of course there's a computer and of course there's going to be someone who administers it. And of course there's going to be someone who can ultimately pull the plug if they want to turn the computer off. But really with Ethereum, what we've done is we've built a computer um, that role doesn't exist. The computer cannot, at least in principle, be turned off. And there isn't anyone who is sat by it who can sort of log in as administrator and start altering the database. In effect, we've built a computer that everybody can share in the almost as though there's sort of a, a JavaScript environment that everybody is allowed to log into and step on each other's toes, except we've done so building with, with safeguards to prevent people stepping on each other's toes so that the objects in this object environment are only allowed to sort of call each other um, in, uh, in very particular manners and with very particular uh, safeguards attached. Um, so when we think about applications, well, then, then we get to the thing of, well, actually, what could I do if there were um, this JavaScript environment or whatever that, that anybody could log into and could do so securely with an authenticated um, uh, sort of user identity uh, that we could count on? And then we can start thinking about, right, well, um, what do servers currently offer um, that the Ethereum sort of machine, the Ethereum computer um, 
could in principle do. And one of them is obviously currencies. Um, central banks and probably most uh, consumer banks will have um, a computer that retains the account balances of each um, identity that banks with them, each person or each organization. And in principle, we can place this software on this world computer. But because it's a world computer and it's shared, it means that we can not just be um, fairly guaranteed it's going to work okay because we can audit it, um, but also that we can um, use these balances, this, this logic in other applications. So no longer do we need to start integrating with banks or central banks or payment systems, but we can use the currency directly because it turns out that the, the object, like literally the, the software object, the instance that is listing everybody's account balances is in the same environment, like literally almost like in the same computer program as the, the software that's actually wanting to make a payment. And when, when you start considering, well, actually, there's no limit to this. The environment can be added to as required. Um, anybody can push logic and code to the environment um, and be sure that the logic and code that they see is going to continue working exactly as they expect, um, or at least as the code states. Um, mm -hmm. then, um, then, then we can start sort of really thinking about how we can rewire society so that many of our systems that we currently have to have um, behind walled gardens um, looked after by very um, uh, influential and powerful uh, organizations and people, or we can start bringing this logic that runs society, because it really does run society, um, actually into a shared space and sort of re-democratize it, if you like. Mm. I have a question here on the building side of things, Jared, is, uh, is just using Coinbase, since we mentioned them as the example, when you say, how do you get Ether, or how do you buy Ether? You know, their steps are pretty easy. It's one, two, three. You sign up for Coinbase. We're not advertising for them, but this is just theirs. But this is how you get Ether in this case, unless you mine it. So you, you sign up for Coinbase, you connect your bank account, and you buy some, essentially exchange some, some currency that you have, which could be US, it could be pounds, it could be something else. And then you buy, and then you sell Ether. At what point does a developer or someone, as Jared has said, care to build something on this? At what point do they get to program Ether? So... What the Coinbase and, and other exchanges, actually a, a few of them, um, what they do is essentially perform a, a bridge between the, 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 the current kind of legacy world of value of money um, and the, the sort of new crypto world of, of value. Um, so they allow you to yeah, indeed to buy and, and, and trade Ether um, for, for fiat currency and they, they have a, a foot in both uh, domains, as it were. Now the developer once once you developer sort of figures out what they want to do with this with this sort of shared computer, um, the developer will uh, will probably take some ether because you need ether to pay for computation on the shared computer and start coding up what will effectively be the back end. Um, so what we normally think of as being you know uh, something that sits on a server that, that has maybe a database attached. Um, that provides services to multiple clients. That's basically the logic that's going to be moved onto um, onto the Ethereum um, um, computer, the Ethereum blockchain. And it's at that point they'll, they'll start coding up a, um, a contract, which is just a, a piece of software. It's almost like an object, right? It's like if you're talking C++ program, it'll be like a class. Um, if you're talking, I don't know, a Rust program, it'll be a struct. But yeah, it's basically an object with some functions uh, that can do some stuff. And that will uh, be uploaded to the Ethereum network with a small payment of Ether just to sort of pay off the, um, the maintainers of the network, the miners. 
Um, and then it will sit there and it'll sit there until someone wants to interact with it. And then it's up to the developer to write the front end, which would normally, you know, this is basically the same sort of technologies, um, Java, CSS, HTML. Um, it's just that the Java, sorry, the JavaScript, uh, it's just that the JavaScript, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the JavaScript can, um, happens to the best of us. I had to laugh all out on that one. Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, the JavaScript is actually able to um, uh, to call into this uh, this contract or this um, this instance uh, that's that's sitting on the Ethereum network. It's able to um, uh, uh, to call methods that sort of alter its state, and it's also able to uh, to check what uh, to inspect the various properties uh, that are public. So, is it safe to think of it in terms of like any sort of agreement that you would previously make in the real world, or what you call it, the legacy world? you could now move that to an application on the Ethereum network. So perhaps a mortgage or an agreement to buy something or uh, a prenuptial agreement or anything that you could possibly think that would be an agreement between two parties, you could, we could now move this into the virtual space safely? Um, that's in principle correct, yes. Now, there are a few, um, uh, there's one thing to point out, which is that it doesn't just need to be between two parties, but sure. it can be between any number of parties. Right. Um, now, the other thing is to say um, the concepts that the blockchain can currently um, encode, which is to say these, the, the language that we have to play with in terms of what aspects of reality we want to place on the blockchain. So, for example, if we're talking about a marriage contract, we may want to talk about um, things like there being a, a, a lawyer in the case of divorce, a judge in the case of divorce, um, to determine um, whose fault it was that, that they're getting divorced in order to make sure that there's um, you know, a proper payment um, between mm. the two. Now, the notion of judge um, is, is not really it's pretty easy to write that into a legal contract because we have centuries of, of, of case law about what it is to be, uh, uh, to be in such a role. Uh, that's not the case with Ethereum. We're still in the very early days. And so we have relatively little concept. Our language is not very rich. Um, but the richness is something that in the same way that with programming, you end up uh, having, um, you know, increasing your sort of um, the level at which you code over, over time as more and more libraries, system libraries are written and integrated into the system. Um, you end up being able to code in much richer concepts. And that's mm -hmm. going to be the same with Ethereum. So at the moment, the concepts we are able to draw on are relatively, um, are relatively um, uh, whatever, poor, poor. But uh, over time, we're going to be building these kind of um, um, whatever system libraries, as you, uh, you might say, or case precedent law in the case of, uh, uh, in the case of legal, uh, to take the legal parallel. Um, this is going to build up the language into something much richer. I think it might be useful to, to specify a specific set of contracts that we could talk about in real terms, and that will help us understand kind of the ins and the outs. I think that's kind of what Adam was getting at with like, how does the ether fit in and how do you get money in and out? And the DAO is no doubt your most popular set of contracts and perhaps a little bit notorious now because of the hack. Give us the, the DAO, the lay of the land and the recent history there and help us understand Ethereum in light of it. Um, sure. So. Um, the DAO, if, uh, if we're not aware, stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. Essentially, it's, um, it's a means of bringing um, various people together into some, um, some form of like bound um, contract or some bound um, uh, set of interests. 
So um, the idea behind the DAO is more or less like a fund. So it can a VC fund, it can it can back particular um, um, endeavors. And the idea is that the endeavors will ultimately um, make money or create value and push the value back into the DAO so that all of the members of the DAO um, get in some sense richer. Now you can buy into the DAO, that was the idea, um, by depositing Ether under the control of this DAO contract. Now it's a bit of a, a bit of an odd thing to say. Well, how you know putting putting money under control of a of a contract? How does that work? But it, it, that's that's exactly how it how it works, right? You you write some software, and the software states the logic of um, of this agreement of this multilateral agreement, and part of the logic is saying um, what happens or under what circumstances money should be transferred, and. Uh, in, in much the same way that you might have a joint bank account where um, you need both signatures before the money is transferred. Well, so it was the case with the DAO. Only the DAO, it, it'll happen with, you know, a thousand, four thousand or five thousand or whatever signatories. And you needed, there was some much more complex thing about how many of them had to agree to it before funds were transferred. But nonetheless, basically, it's that kind of thing. It's a, it's a shared bank account with um, very particular logic for um, who gets what money. And for, um, uh, for for hopefully uh, integrating the the, the eventual um, uh, ventures back into the DAO, so the DAO itself um, can uh, can reward um, uh, those who sort of back the right venture. So who who wrote the smart contract for the DAO, and then like who all got involved, and how much money was uh, jointly shared in that contract? Yeah, there were there were several contributors to the to the DAO contract, um, but uh, I think it's probably fair to say that the main contributor was um, a guy called for uh, Christoph Jentsch. And he is he a notable member of the Ethereum community, or is he a part of? Was it just in his free time? Like, give us kind of the I don't know the geopolitical landscape of this, so we can understand it better. Um, sure. So um, there was a uh, a company called Slocket, which uh, still exists and they're doing, uh, as far as I hear, reasonably well. Uh-huh. Um, and um, for whatever reason, Slocket wanted to uh, sort of pursue this idea of a of a, of a universal uh, sharing network. So this is the idea of basically uh, take something like Airbnb um, and take a Uber and, and maybe a few other sort of um, sort of apps that allow people to share their resources or um, do decentralized service industry uh, work. And uh, that's kind of what this was about. This was basically trying to um, trying to take a resource that you own and be able to allow someone else to use it for a period of time um, in, in return for a payment. So the idea behind Slocket was basically to say, right, well, one of the critical sort of elements to make this work is going to be a lock uh, that's controlled by a blockchain. So they went away and they made a lock that was controlled by a blockchain. Hmm. Over on that subject, I don't mind if uh, if maybe we can just establish one more, as you said earlier, Jerry, just kind of like some some terminology. And for those that are new to it, it may be completely obvious. Uh, for those who are you know deep into this, but for those who want, what exactly is a blockchain? <laughs> so the blockchain is the underlying data structure that allows Ethereum to be both um, secure and decentralized. So normally, if you've got a decentralized system, there's no real way of, of, well, because you don't trust anybody on it, because it's decentralized and anybody could be on it, um, it, it's kind of hard to to, uh, to, to get a a sort of footing to to understand what's the noise and what's the signal. Mm. So what the blockchain is, is a a decentralized data structure that allows us to, to create a signal that everyone agrees on 
uh, despite uh, the noise of malevolent actors or just broken machines. Um, so critically, it's, um, it's basically what I would call a sort of decentralized state transition system. So if we imagine that there's some, um, some shared state and the state could be as simple as when we imagine the state, we might imagine the memory of a computer uh, at one particular time, at point in time. Um, and this state is going to iterate as transactions or operations are, are, are executed on the computer in the same way that, you know, um, as, you, as you type something into a text editor, the memory of the text editor changes. And uh, what we've done basically uh, with the blockchain is, is create a, um, a decentralized version of that. So we can place programs on and the programs have some state and they will, um, the program, um, the ongoing um, operation of the program will be managed by the network as a whole rather than by any one computer individually. Mm. So back to the, to the history of the DAO, you mentioned uh, Slocket and the setup and uh, the DAO. Give us a time period on this in terms of when it started. And then um, we know it became very popular and a lot of people joined and a lot of money went into it perhaps more than anybody was necessarily expecting at the time. Can you, can you continue down that path for us? Um, yeah, so the DAO was deployed by personal persons unknown. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, two companies were, were particularly um, uh, sort of enthusiastic about it. I forget one of them. I think it was a robotics firm. And the other one was, was Slocket. Mm -hmm. um, now, indeed, uh, a substantial amount of uh, funds went into it. I think... Uh, I think it was sort of 150 million was the figure banded about, but I think it actually went even higher than that at one point because Ether itself started to um, started to creep up in value, mm. um, and so it, it was really quite a lot of, of funds. And I think it was probably more than the uh, uh, than than anyone had expected, uh, including some of the authors of the contract itself. And then, yes, indeed, there was a uh, there was a bug in the contract, which was. Uh, probably a bug that would be recognizable to a, a low-level device driver programmer. And in a way, the contracts that we're writing, these programs are more or less at that level because they're dealing so closely with the Ethereum virtual machine. So essentially, it was a re-entry bug. Um, uh, the, a particular um, function call um, was, was being called actually within itself uh, by, the malicious, um, by the malicious transaction. And so before it actually finished its operation, it was, uh, it was, it was being called again. And because of the order of, um, of the, the points in the function, um, it was doing the sort of the bad thing before it was doing the good thing. And so the bad things started to multiply up. Um, and eventually the good things couldn't actually, um, they, weren't, they were asymmetric and the good things couldn't, couldn't make it back, back down to normal again. Um, and that's essentially what, what, what went wrong. So basically someone was draining money out, the bad thing, um, and the money, th there was no way of compensating that with the good thing because so much money had been drained out. Um, now, re-entry books are pretty, um, I, when I think of a re-entry book, I think of interrupt programming. And it was only after this book that I thought, actually, what we're doing with the, with the contract is, is, is in some sense more similar to um, interrupts rather than function calls. When we think about function calls, we don't really think about re-entry books so much, at least not malicious re-entry books. Um, with interrupt programming, it's a little different and you're much more careful about your state because you do actually fear that the same interrupt may be called um, uh, while the current one is executing. So money began to be drained. Where does it drained? to like where does it go 
to this other person's ether wallet or uh, some sort of a bank account? Where does it go when it gets when it started getting drained out? Um, so there were numerous safeguards written into the logic of the DAO, which prevented the money from going anywhere um, anytime soon. It, I think it was about 30 or 40 days it would have taken to actually get the money out um, into, an, into a, a wallet. And then it turned out that um, a group of, of um, concerned parties um, called the, uh, the Robin Hood group or the White Hat uh, group actually hacked the DAO themselves using a similar attack and then a... a, a a selection of similar attacks, actually, in order to um, to safeguard as much of the funds as possible and to prevent the attacker from um, from actually taking any of, and drawing any of the funds out themselves. And so, effectively, it, it turned into a stalemate where they were using the attack against each other, and the funds were just locked. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds very much like the wild, wild west that uh, <laughs> that we've heard all about, and. Do you think that's kind of a fair way to think about it? Because it is, you know, completely decentralized. It's it's virtual. There's, you know, it crosses international datelines and borders. I mean, there's no there's no law in this. I mean, there's different laws of different countries, but then you also have, you know, the smart contract kind of is the law, but, but the, the only smart, law is the contract. The law has a bug, and we all know that the the contract is not executing on what people agreed to, right? Because these people put their USD into it or whatever their dollar was, 150, 160 million. And they're all, they were all up in arms or scared or angry, perhaps, depending on how much money they had into it and how much money they have on the whole. Um, some might have just been amused, but who's to say what happens and where it goes from here? Is it very much just like whoever executes on technical abilities or uh, give us, give us insight into that? Cause it's so fascinating and yet it just seems like who knows what's going to happen. Um, so I think the wild, wild west comment is is quite true. It, it is a lawless um, sort of area if you don't count the um, the law of the, the program, the law of the software. Um, now, ultimately, the software is based upon um, a social system, which is that assuming that everybody is self-interested, um, then um, the the economics of the blockchain will mean that that no no individual can actually alter the outcome of anything. Um, everyone is sort of almost pulling in a different direction, which averages out at zero. Kind of that that's the kind of thing the blockchain is trying to um, engender, and that's the economic game that that sort of acts as the foundation to why the blockchain is fair and democratic. Now with the DAO, of course, so much of the of the value was um, was sort of compromised. Um, that 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 assertion was not wholly true in that um, the parties that were maintaining Ethereum, the, the sort of community, in fact, mm-hmm. um, had an awful lot to lose. <laughs> and so, in right. some sense, there's what what happened was that they um, they formed almost like a, a special interest group um, within the Ethereum community. Um, which wanted a, um, a reset of this particular um, sort of bug or a particular um, exploit of the bug. Mm-hmm. And so here we have the decision of what to do about it. This is, uh, to give some context, June-ish, July-ish, 2016. Um, that's probably enough time frame, uh, although not probably completely accurate. But then you have conversations going out. And, you know, where is the, where does the community meet? For my perspective as more of a community watcher it's like they're on twitter they're on reddit i'm sure there's forums on different ethereum uh websites 
and probably there's some conversation behind closed doors, but from your perspective, where is the community conversation going around about what do we do about this circumstance? Um, it's everything that you've mentioned, basically. It's, um, you know, social media. Uh, Uh I mean, there, there was even stuff going on on GitHub, like some of the issues that were perhaps a little more contentious of things that were um, coding up potential solutions or potential, uh, um, mitigations, um, were, were attracting, um, quite heated arguments about, (laughs) um, uh, you know, what, what the code was doing and whether it was even right to start programming, (laughs) you know, whether it was right to put forward potential pull requests. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it was going on all over the place. Um, which is unsurprising given that there wasn't a single point of, of governance for this community. Um, so it's going to just come out everywhere. Um, now, I'd point out that one of the, um, one of the more interesting uh, uh, sort of places um, was, was this, this voting system. Um, I don't remember who wrote it. Uh, but um, but some concerned party within the community wrote a um, uh, basically a voting application that allowed you to uh, back your vote with ether. So you're essentially able to to tie a particular vote to a particular account that that presumably was holding um, your ether. And what it allowed you to do was get a um, um, a weighted set of results about what the uh, the general desire of the community was. Mm. So. Uh, the decision was made for the reset, correct? So there was a hard fork in the road at which uh, we can talk about the implications of that. But was that decision made using this tool where everybody voted and it was kind of a majority win? Or was there, how does the actual consensus come together? Was it, was it the tool? Um, well, this is, the, this is also the funny thing. There really wasn't any particular decision made, at least no, no big one. The, um, really? The, 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 the network um, consensus essentially came from people uh, running uh, their, their client, their, their, uh, their Ethereum client, um, with one option or another option. So we're literally just talking about a command line flag here. Um, and it was basically, if you run your client with, with one flag and you mine, your mining blocks, we assume, then um, it, will, it will mine on one chain, which will not rescue the DAO. And if you mine with some other flag, um, that it will mine on the other chain, which will rescue the DAO. So really? nobody made a, a specific decision other than the miners themselves. And the, uh, some of the miners just decided one way or another. Other of the miners, uh, the, particularly the pools, actually put it out to a vote. So they said to their members, you know, which, which uh, way would you like us to, to mine? Which, which flag would you like us to set? And, um, and, and they, the, the pool members would have voted one way or the other. And I think one of the pools actually voted... Um, uh, against the fork, so they voted to to sort of to keep the exploit in place. But um, I think ultimately, actually, the pool decided to override them. Them anyway, uh, when it was clear that everybody else was um, uh, was 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 going with the other. Does that mean that from that point forward, once you had people running, you know, with both flags, you basically have two blockchains or two histories that are running in parallel? Is that how that works? Yeah, it's basically like imagine if you. Um, you had a computer program running and then sort of you did a hot fix for it. Mm-hmm. Then uh, what would happen if, you know, Schrodinger's cat, um, if there was an exactly 50% chance that you did the hot fix and deployed it and 50% mm. chance that you didn't, then you would end up with this kind of quantum entangled uh, 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 computer program that may or may not have the fix. And that's, that's effectively what happened with Ethereum. So it may or may not have happened. 
<laughs> so it may or may not have happened. And it depends on which Ethereum you look at. So as soon as as soon as you choose an Ethereum, then it, it will it will snap into uh, into one state or the other. Um, but until then, um, it may or may not have happened. Wow, that's funny. So one thing I think about as we have this conversation, um, Jared's deeper into this. He's done a lot of the research on this, and I'm sort of playing uh, outfielder, so to speak. He's pitching. Um, but I'm thinking about things like trust, right? Like you've got the Dow, which is a contract written, a lot of money pulled into it. And when you think about the, the trust of, or the, the mainstream public eventually making cryptocurrency become more and more mainstream, you think about this level of trust. And so what happened with the Dow is this, is this simply a, a, a contract issue, the way that somebody wrote a contract, or is it something that is underlying the actual technology that as we just mentioned, was forked with one Ethereum or the other. It's not so much how which program was better, it was more or less which blockchain was chosen, right? Like, how do people deal with trust when they look at this this problem y'all faced and this fork and this you know this uh, this hacker, so to speak, and then the anti the white hat hackers hacking the hacker and all this stuff? How does this is how does how do people come into this uh, as not insiders and and ha- and like operate with a level of trust? So I think it's um, I think some parallels can be drawn to the early internet, where it, you know there was sort of slightly scary to to send payment um, um, information over the internet. Um, so I remember back in ninety eight, and it was still relatively commonplace. I was still being asked um, to to pass my credit card information via email. It's like, well, I don't really want to do that. That's uh, you know like incredibly insecure. Um, SSL was still kind of a fairly new thing um, mm-hmm. to the point that, that e-commerce sites often didn't have it implemented. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, we're kind of, we're going to have to go through the same phase with Ethereum. So there's going to be an early teething stage where um, things don't operate quite as you expect. Either the Ethereum technology itself doesn't. Luckily, we haven't had any of those bugs yet. Uh, but in principle, it could happen. It is a nascent technology. Um, it happened with Bitcoin, so I wouldn't rule it out. Though we have taken very particular steps to avoid that, in particular multiple implementations and a formal specification. Um, and the second thing that could happen is just the, the economic um, uh, foundation behind um, the, the smooth running of the Ethereum network um, gets a little uh, frayed, and that's pretty much what happened with the DAO. Um, the the fact it forked owed to the fact that there was such a large contingent of value uh, that people wanted to save that were also uh, people who maintained the Ethereum network. Um, and I think as the network matures, um, that's going to be much less likely to happen, quite simply because the, the, the value of Ethereum is going to disperse uh, as more and more people get involved. I guess another question is... Uh... On the on the front of that, as it just as you mentioned before, Jared, 150, 160 million dollars in the Dow, and Gavin, with you saying this is still sort of like uh, compared it to the Wild Wild West, as Jared mentioned earlier, and then what you just said there is it since this is sort of, it seems like it's kind of like even in guinea pig stage almost, not so much like uh, that it doesn't work because it does, but there's some kinks in the rope, so to speak, that need to be ironed out, and only maturity and only time will allow that to happen is it possible that that someone with lots of money in ether could potentially lose big as part of the maturity um it's i wouldn't rule it out um though um as someone with a substantial portion of their net worth in ether 
Um, I also uh, wouldn't say it's such a terrible bet either. Um, it, on that, let's pause there on, on that note since you said that because I have to ask. So you said a substantial amount of your net worth is in ether. Is that right? That's correct. So percentage, just percentage, not so much a number. Just curious. Um, I, I, 70%, 60%, 30? Uh, yeah, like at least 50. 50, okay. More. So you're, you're, you're half in, half out, so to speak. Something like that. Okay, <laughs> right. It's, it's probably also worth uh, just clarifying, just for transparency reasons. We'll have people, especially some of our listeners are, you know, I talked about the ones who were against the fork and the ones that are for the fork. I, I looked at it very much like the idealistic point of view is like this is the way the contract was signed so it must exist that way and the others are more pragmatic like nobody wanted this to be able to happen and all this money be drained out and of course where you fall on that line if you're not just an observer um if you're involved is very much tied into if you have money that you'll be losing so you have you know a lot of your your personal wealth in ether i assumed you also had part in the dow is that true um, I had, I made a, uh, a, a small investment in the Dow. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, I, nothing against that. It just, it helps give a little color to the, your, you were pro, I'm sure you were pro fork, correct? Um, well, I had a fairly nuanced, uh, and still continue to have a fairly nuanced view. I think the, um, Oh, let's hear it. Uh, the sad thing was that both options, neither were especially great options. Um, the, the situation was was sort of pretty bad. The, the hand that was dealt was, was really quite, um, quite unfortunate. Yeah, right. So, well, on one side, money is saved, right, and then other on the other side is like trust is reduced. Is that basically what happened? So it's not clear whether money was really saved. Um, in that the uh, you know substantial portion of, of Ether's value has was was reduced. Um, after around the Dow and the time the Dow, the, the, around the time of the Dow hack, so I mean it went. It was around twenty one dollars, I think, at, around the Dow hack, and then it sort of it pushed down to maybe nine, eight or nine, I think, when it when it went through. So um, it, it's not really clear whether um, whether fixing it really saved um, really saved money mm. um, for any holders any holders of um, of the Dow tokens that had less than. I guess around fifteen percent of their ether in the DAO token, then they wouldn't have lost money. It was only for the people who put in um, more than fifteen percent, uh, since it was fifteen percent that ultimately maybe uh, may have been locked forever um, through the stalemate position. Huh. Um, so, in reality, uh, I'm not sure um, whether it really was saving money. But then that said, you know, if you have the option of trying to write what is pretty obviously a wrong yeah should you do something or should you not do something so for me it was more like um it was less of a, a practical concern and more of just like well maybe you know if i see someone being robbed in the street i would like to actually be the guy that, that goes up and like stops the robber and returns the hand back right and, yeah. and so it, it, there was that kind of notion uh, going alongside it. But that said, there's also an awfully strong um, uh, prim principle here, which is that the, the blockchain is meant to be immutable and the code that's on it is meant to actually be the code that governs how the value is, um, you know, how that logic works. And so it's really quite difficult to weigh one up against the other. And that was the, that was the situation that we found ourselves in. So if there was a vote, since it is a 
one or a zero in this case, like you either voted for or you voted against it, which there was no true vote, but it's as you said, your answer is nuanced and you explain that to us. In the end, if it had to come down to a vote of for or against, which would have it have been? Um, I've never answered that question to myself and I don't plan on doing so <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Well, let's let's take our next break. We have more to talk about. So many interesting things here. This is just fascinating stuff to me. And to give a little bit of a background, we we had this show teed up. Like I said, I read that post on the Coinbase blog back in April, and I think I probably emailed you immediately following Gavin. Um, we got you on the show on in June of 2016, and due to some technical issues, we actually didn't record that day. And uh, that was like right when you're in the middle of all this DAO stuff. In fact, uh, I think we joked that, you know, uh, maybe be better to do the show a little bit later because this will have passed. And Adam and I said, well, maybe, you know, cryptocurrencies and these altcoins and everything comes and goes so fast. Maybe there won't be an Ethereum by the time I think we had an August (laughs) schedule and then a September schedule. And so here we are talking about it. So it seems like you weathered the storm, but uh, I want to kind of talk about the fallout and the repercussions of, of the hard fork and where things are now. And give people some look into the present and the future and how we can fit in as software developers. So tee that all up and we'll be right back. Every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com weekly and subscribe. All right, we are back with Gavin Wood, and we have done it. We've survived the Dow hack. We are on the other side. Now, looking back, this is uh, late September, early October 2016. The Ethereum community still lives. Uh, It's a little bit different now. We actually have two histories, two currencies, and uh, there's now Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. Gavin, give us the lay of the land now after you guys have survived and kind of moved forward from the unfortunate summer you had? Well, it, it's more or less, as you said, indeed, Ethereum um, split up basically between the people that ran the, um, uh, with a flag that said, um, help the DAO, help rescue the DAO. And, uh, and, and on the other hand, the people who didn't run with that flag. And so we have what Ethereum, the immutable Ethereum, as it were, the Ethereum that was uh, where the code truly did rule, the broken code ruled. And then the Ethereum, um, where, where it was sort of uh, hard-coded uh, to fix that, um, that application um, issue. Um, and that's more or less where it stands. So um, by and large, the aftermath has died down. Uh, people are getting on. Um, so I think at the moment, the, the DevCon, the Ethereum conference, is, is happening in Shanghai. And I don't think there's all that much talk about um, Ethereum classic, although I can't say for sure. But from what I've seen of the of the of the talks, people are sort of focusing more, much more on the uh, sort of forward-looking stuff uh, rather than the DAO. And um, and the Ethereum classic community seems to be uh, sort of continuing. Um, I haven't seen any any sort of major technical um, improvements on it recently, but uh, nonetheless, there's uh, a change in their in their logo and. Uh, um, um, not, and, and it is continuing. The price is, is dropping somewhat, but um, 
but yeah, it's um, it seems to be still here. Still here. So let's talk in terms of uh, market value. I'm not sure what Ethereum maxed out at uh, pre DAO hack, but it looks like it's trading against the US dollar at about $14. Yeah, it was about 21 before the DAO hack. And is that the, the max that it's reached in its lifetime? Yes. Okay. Well, it sounds like not too bad. I mean, it's not like it's a penny stock nowadays. No, I mean, uh, it, it hit, I think, eight or nine. I don't remember precisely how far down it went, but around that. And so it, it's back up to, um, I mean, the 21 looked fairly bubble-like. It was really riding on the back of all this investment in the Dow. I think there was a lot of um, maybe people coming into Ethereum from outside of the ecosystem rather than just um, Ether holders themselves putting uh, Ether into the Dow. And I think that's probably what was pushing the price up a little um, so I'd say it's, um, it's doing pretty well. It's certainly, um, reached my expectations. Right. Well, this isn't an investment show. It's definitely a show about software. And so I'll, I'll, I'll stop down that route, but let me just say that, you know, we've been watching this and, uh, watched loosely some of the alternative coins or the things that are like changes to Bitcoin or, you know, inspired by Bitcoin. And like I said, before the break, there's lots of things that come and go and, I was even mining some court coin for a few months and, you know, just for fun. And that's, I think, or 0.00 at this point. And <laughs> perhaps it's completely not, you know, just a footnote in history. And one thing that we look for as we, you know, invest our time and our skills and perhaps even our money into communities and software projects, because this is a very large software and open source software project. Uh, there's over 80 projects that you guys have, the, the Ethereum organization has on GitHub. We look for sustainability and like long lasting things. And one of the, you know, one of the constant themes in our shows and in our community of developers is the JavaScript fatigue and the constant churn of new frameworks and new ways of doing things. And some people see it as a renaissance. Other people see it as, you know, ridiculous. And, and we, we don't, I personally don't like buy into new JavaScript frameworks very often because I'm just waiting for the next one. And it seems like with the cryptocurrencies, there's very much that possibility. Um, aside from Bitcoin, many other ones have come and gone. And of course, Bitcoin itself hasn't been around for all that long in the you know, grand history. So that's one of the questions I have about Ethereum, especially as we look at it as an app platform. And we'll get back to that. Looking forward, you've survived this, you know, what would be considered a PR disaster and really a, a crisis in your community um, over the summer. And looking forward, like what is it about Ethereum that you believe makes it have lasting power that we can have trust, not just in the, the currency, but in the platform as something that we can invest in. So I'd hope that, um, I mean, the point of Ethereum um, is, is that you don't need to trust it. Um, so if you want, you can, you can open it up and look, see, what, see what's inside and convince yourself that it, it's actually worth, um, uh, worth going with. I mean, in that sense, I kind of liken it more to uh, sort of simple tools um, that you, you know, when you, when you, uh, I don't know, want to buy a, a garden spade at your local um, gardening um, uh, equipment store, you don't necessarily look at the, uh, look at the brand um, uh, to see if it's a brand you trust, but rather you actually take the spade and you start like kicking it <laughs> to see whether it's actually, you know, <laughs> likely to break or not in usage. Um, you, you're actually evaluating it yourself rather than going to a um, 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 over to the brand and, and, and using trust. And I think that's really what people did in the, in the sort of you know 
much earlier, sort of olden days, uh, before the, the real um, surgence of, um, of brands and of, um, of the need to trust. Um, so I think that the idea of trusting and of brands themselves are a relatively modern notion. Um, and I think it's also kind of not a bad thing necessarily to go back to the, uh, to the ideas of, of evaluating something based upon its, its, its practical material um, um, attributes rather than um, its label. Um, so not to say that there isn't a place for trust in the world, but rather that, um, you know, maybe the, you know, in the continuum between sort of um, trust and reality, we should be moving the point of the needle a little bit uh, back towards where it came. So let's get back to uh, those who are willing to give it a shot and, and test it out ourselves and, and do the things that you're promoting here with regard to the platform. Um, we talked about how you can build systems that are use or are built around agreements between two or more parties um, in a decentralized fashion. And I said, well, is it like anything that can have an agreement? And there's, it's, that's, a, that's a soft, you had a soft yes to that. There are some specific things that are outside the bounds of what you can do with regards to verifying uh, contracts. But give us some concrete examples of early Ethereum uh, systems. You, you mentioned one during the DAO fork, the DAO hack, which was the voting tool. Um, what are some other things to help give our listeners like that muse, that inspiration of, oh, I could build my, I wanted to build a crowdfunding site. I can use this, or for instance, um, give us some more of those so we can whet our appetites. Okay, so yeah, you got crowdfunding. So the DAO was like a, a, um, a VC fund that anyone can contribute to. Um, so you can obviously uh, pair that down and just say, right, well, actually, um, rather than being able to choose any project, um, it's for one particular project and you can crowdfund that. So you can basically state, I plan on spending the money on X, Y, Z, um, and there'll be uh, some potential for maybe you to make money from um, this X, Y, Z in this way. Um, and I want money from you to, to do this. And you can create a, a contract that will allow you to accept people's money and spend it over some particular period of time on some particular things with perhaps some particular um, set of judges that will uh, say, actually, you know, they're not getting these milestones completed in time. We're going to, um, we're going to stop the funding and return the money, what's left at least to, 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 the, um, to the funders. So that's that's one thing that you can that's one example of something that you can you can program on this. Um, but just thinking slightly more sort of crazily, pushing it out there a bit. Uh, what about a game of chess? So a game of chess, except uh, when you take a piece, um, you actually uh, lose money uh, or gain money. So you're essentially placing money into uh, onto the chessboard and you're saying, right, well every um, uh, every piece on the board is actually worth something and. Um, the winner is the one, you know, inevitably that, that sort of takes the pieces that are, are most valuable. Mm. Um, so that's something that you you just couldn't do. I mean, not certainly not easily. You have to sort of create a business and register it with PayPal because PayPal needs to trust that you're not whatever you know has to, has to do KYC and AML and that's know your customer and anti money laundering to those who aren't uh, familiar with these financial terms. So it has to do all sorts of processes, business processes, meat space processes before you can work with money, before you can work with value. Even though soft, it's all just software, but we still have these, these processes that you have to go through um, to set up these kind of trust routes. And with a system like Ethereum, it is, it's literally just software. You don't have to do that anymore. So you can, you can actually, uh, value is, is a fundamental primitive of the language. 
um, that you're coding this stuff in. So it's actually trivial. It's completely trivial. It's as trivial as um, incrementing an, uh, an integer as it is to send money in Ethereum. It, it, it's super, super easy. Um, imagine a game of chess, yeah, where you can where you can make money off your opponent across the internet um, by being a good chess player. That's fine. So maybe something like Mechanical Turk um, or uh, you know one of the other sort of mean, um, uh, matchmaking services that allows you to find someone who does work. And you can say, right, well, uh, we're going to have this third party who will decide whether you've done the work. So I want some design work, say, or I want some copy, uh, some copywriting work, and we'll have a third party, a nominated party. Um, that you can both agree on that that's basically says whether the copywriting or the design is 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 of sufficient quality to be paid and then you can paste the payment in escrow so you can have an escrow system on this yeah. and um and then the, the payment gets made if and only if the work is done so that's something that can be done again very easily there's no need to integrate it into any payment services there's no need to to register a company or do anything like that it all happens in in, in software no meat space complications um okay another example Let's think about um, uh, asset tracking. So let's think about you know, the way the world works, uh, the way that uh, supply chains work. Um, I buy a pair of trainers in a shop. Um, I, you know, how do I know where the trainers came from? I mean, I can look at the label and maybe it says like, I don't know, made in China or something, but it's very difficult to, to know um, which bits came together from which places, um, where it went on its way, uh, what the intermediate owners were, um, where the raw materials themselves came from, uh, this information just gets lost. And why does it get lost? It's, it's not necessarily lost because the people who are handling it want it to be lost. It's just really, really hard to, to put it somewhere that's at once sort of secure, that isn't um, sort of um, you know, mutable uh, by some administrator, um, and that is, is ubiquitous, is global enough such that all of the various different um, people along the line can, can place their records in the database. Um, effectively, what it needs is a really strong, secure, shared internet-based database, um, and that database hasn't hasn't been around. I mean, if it had have been around, then we wouldn't need things like um, Fair Trade or, or the Soil Association. We would just have it all online. These uh, these kinds of um, asset shadowing is what I call them because it's sort of like taking an asset and placing it in some sort of shadow, like a, a, a pairing uh, on the on the internet on the blockchain. Um, these kinds of asset shadowing things don't really exist yet, um, but that's exactly the sort of thing that the blockchain would really excel at doing because it is this database with very strong logic guarantees, um, with uh, very strong security, so you can be certain that authenticated users really are authenticated. Um, uh, that's ubiquitous. It's everywhere that the internet is, and it's open and free, and that's really great for um, allowing third parties to create custom solutions and make their own dime off the back of this technology. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know if that's that's helped give you a bit of an, an idea about where this stuff can go. Yeah, absolutely, it does. And it, I was even beginning to brainstorm a distributed escrow before, right as you began to explain it. So was, uh, you're starting to get me at least thinking along these lines, and I think that's powerful when you have a lot of people who are smart and able and, and can program and can think of these new things that previously couldn't exist. And let's see what we can do with it. One question we have with regard to the future, I know Adam has voiced this as well, is like how, if and how can something like Ethereum go mainstream? And it seems like it's the kind of thing, just like the web was, where it wasn't mainstream until uh, everybody was using it without having to understand it. And so right now we have blog posts and Wikipedia articles and podcasts, 
you know, explaining Ethereum to uh, people who are interested, very fringe listeners like ours. Um, but where do you, how far do you think we are from like mainstream people are using some sort of like service or application online that uses the Ethereum platform in the background and they don't even have to know that it exists and yet uh, there it is. I think that's when we know that cryptocurrencies in general and perhaps Ethereum in particular have arrived. How far are we from that future and, and how do we get there? Um, if you'd have asked me that question about 12 months ago, I would have said probably about six months. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, developer I, I, at heart. I'm not sure I can give a great answer this time. I, I would, um, instead of saying how far out, maybe what would it take? Right. What has that, what, what has to move as you use the chessboard analogy earlier, what would have to move on the chessboard to make this mainstream? So uh, the critical thing, so I'd, I'd, lay, I'd, I'd probably say two things. Firstly, the tools. We need, we need better tools for developers in order that developers, it's just a no-brainer to be able to pick something up and actually run with it, actually make, make an application that's, that's going to change the world. Um, the second thing that we need is um, better user interfaces for, for all of this stuff. So on the other hand, the end users are not really provided uh, with a an especially good means of interacting with Ethereum or probably more importantly, um, it's, it's applications. Yeah. Um, so we're going to need much better integrations into things like, you know, web browsers. And that's something that, that we're working on at, at Ethcore. Um, and we're going to need uh, uh, better tooling so developers can, um, uh, you know, can create that experience really easily. Mm. You mentioned Ethcore. It's probably a good opportunity as we get near the close of the show to give a little bit more around yourself and, and we mentioned you have a lot of your net worth in ether, um, that you're working with the foundation. Remind me again, the foundation that's involved here, uh, uh the Ethereum foundation. Okay. Easy enough. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, I, I was thinking it had to be harder than that, but, uh, I didn't want to guess wrong. So yeah, the Ethereum foundation, and then you have Ethcore, which is a, I assume a for-profit company that you're, you're a part of. So give us that, uh, understanding. And then what are you guys doing at Ethcore that is, is launching off of the Ethereum we're trying to? Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, I was one of the people who sort of helped found the Ethereum Foundation, um, which is, is continuing. It's a nonprofit uh, based in Switzerland uh, that's um, you know doing um, fairly um, important stuff within the community, like um, organizing conferences um, and ensuring that the um, the sort of at least one client of, of the Ethereum network is, is well maintained. And this client, uh, for what it's worth, is called Geth. Now, the uh, Fcore is, is a company set up by me. It's um, a few of the people that were originally um, members of the foundation, employees of the foundation, also um, sort of came along with me and, and helped me set up uh, Fcore. And what we're doing is... Uh, Firstly, injecting a bit of choice into the ecosystem. So we have a, an alternative implementation of the Ethereum protocol uh, called Parity. Um, and we're also uh, trying to push forward on this UI and trying to make Ethereum uh, that much easier for, uh, for people to interact with. And uh, in part, uh, also make a, a developer a tool set, a developer API um, that's, uh, that's better than the, the current one that, that really sort of um, helps developers um, uh, get their head around uh, what needs to be done and helps them actually create applications much faster. Parity is open source. You mentioned a browser. Is that the Mist browser that we found or is that a separate browser? 
So that's a separate browser. That's that's being done currently by the uh, by the foundation. Okay. Um, Parity itself uh, is a browser as well as a client. So uh, we're taking a different tack at the moment. There's there's basically the Mist browser, which is a separate executable. It's a separate browser. Um, it's a separate program. It's it's very much designed around um, sort of browsing Ethereum DApps, and that was that was something that, that I was sort of involved with in the in the early stages of it. And then what we're doing at Ethcore is sort of doing it different way around. We're saying actually let's let's allow the user to use their own browser to use Chrome or Firefox or whatever, um, and then Chrome and Firefox will just be able to display uh, DApps, so the DApps will appear these decentralized applications. Bit of an odd word, DApp, but there we are. Um, these DApps will appear within the user's browser um, itself and um, parity the sort of everything to do with ethereum will be running in the background uh, the user doesn't really need to know or understand how that works it will just appear to them like any other website so this is like to enable ethereum powered applications inside your browsers to make payments or to to sign contracts as part of the browser is that right yeah, to, to interact. So uh, we can imagine, you know, with the, uh, the the game of chess where you get money for, for taking the other player's uh, pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that way I can imagine that as kind of, you know, a, a 3D chess board actually in the browser. And then it sort of tells you how much money you've got so far, which pieces you've captured. So. Gotcha. So as we close out, uh, it was definitely a blast having you, Gavin. I mean, like I said, I played Outfitter a lot in this, in this conversation. Jared's far more the pitcher than I am in this case, but it's been a blast kind of hearing the process of, you know, what it takes to have a trust-free marketplace down to all these things around Ethereum, ETHCore, uh, the open source being built around it, the community being built around it, the hacks, the the Robin Hood white hats uh, attacking those guys back. And it's just, you know, such an adventure I can see here. But uh, one thing we like to do for our listeners whenever they listen to the show is give them some takeaways. So this is a chance for you to share back with those listening, hackers, people involved in open source, software developers of all kinds, whether beginners or, or experts, um, is a way to step in and get involved. So from your perspective, what are, the, what are the ways in which, you know, we talked before about how can we take this mainstream, what needs to move on the chessboard, so to speak, and maybe not so much a rehash of that, but what are ways in which the open source community can step in, start helping out? Where are the the most low-hanging fruit now that can move this mission forward? How can they step in? Um, so it kind of depends on the, um, on the community members themselves. I mean, if you're, a, if you're someone who's really into kind of low-level programming, working out the nuts and bolts of how things really, uh, really work, then, you know, come over to the Parity site, have a look at the code base. If you, if you, I mean, it's written in Rust, so if, if Rust's your thing or if you want Rust to be your thing, then, um, then yeah, get involved. Uh, there's, there's plenty of, like, um, um, sort of small, low-hanging fruit issues that can be done. Um, now, if, if it's more of like, uh, what's the new frontier? What do these contracts look like? What does the environment that I would be coding in look like? Um, then get find Solidity. There's, there's online documentation for Solidity. Um, get yourself a, a client of Ethereum, uh, Parity or Geth or whatever, and, uh, and start code a little contract. There's, there's plenty of tutorials online uh, that give you uh, very simple contracts that allow you to sort of get the idea of how to create your own currency and deploy it. And you can do this in about 15 minutes. It's really simple. And when you start understanding, you know, how trivial it is to make a currency and deploy it, then you start really getting to grips with actually, hold on, this is a very powerful system because 
you know, I've now got some coins that I can I can literally program. I can program to do whatever I want in the same way that I could I could program it if this was a C language or C plus plus or whatever it is that I normally code in. Um, if it's if programming is not your thing, if you're more just sort of into explaining and documenting and writing, then obviously there's plenty of um, plenty of documentation work to be done. There always is, but even tutorials, um, writing additional tutorials, always great. Uh, helping uh, helping write the manuals, helping write um, helping users understand, uh, get to grips with things that much faster, always good. So lots of stuff to be done. So you mentioned Parity. That's the open source client from ETHCore um, available on Ubuntu, OS 10 through Homebrew or even Docker. Then also on Windows, so you have the full gamut there covered. So anybody out there on any of those platforms can easily pull down Parity and start playing with that in, in that respect. And what exactly, I think we might have covered this earlier, but is Parity is a client. What does a client do? So the client's the thing that connects to all of the other peers on the on the network, or maybe not all of them, but a, a selection of them, and um, trans, uh, transports uh, transactions um, and blocks and builds up the chain of blocks that have gone so far. So basically um, accumulates a concatenation of all of the transactions that have happened in order to understand what the present state is, uh, what the present state of the system is. Gotcha. Um, so the client looks after all of that. And in the case of parity, it also is the thing that provides the user interface so that the user can use their browser in order to um, inspect the chain and to um, potentially run um, applications uh, that rely upon uh, knowledge on the chain. Super quick, is, is parity one of many or are there other interfaces into Ethereum? Um, well, there are many other clients. Uh, there aren't that many other interfaces, um, but there are, I think, uh, seven um, implementations of Ethereum now. Okay. Well, for listeners, we're going to link up Parity in the show notes. We'll talk to Gavin after the show and get that list of other seven. We'll try to put those in the show notes as well. That way we get the full gamut there. But uh, Gavin, this is a chance for you also at the close of the show. Is there anything we didn't ask you that uh, you were like, man, I, I really want to talk about that on the show. You got a couple of minutes. Uh, anything else you'd like to cover? around cryptocurrency, going mainstream, Ethereum, uh, blockchain technologies, whatever. Is there anything else that we may, just, we may have just glossed over that you want to make sure we cover? Um, I mean, I would only sort of um, talk about the future. Um, so at the moment, you know, we've, uh, we've got Ethereum, one of the two sort of critical things that, the, uh, that people really would like to be addressed are uh, a privacy and scalability. So the only thing I'd mention is, you know, if you're um, someone who's like really interested in um, theorizing out this kind of stuff, creating new protocols, uh, working out new systems, then um, this is a great thing to, to think about and um, how we can make blockchains uh, scalable and, uh, and manage uh, uh, privacy. Also, one, one of the things we'd like to ask too is like whenever anybody, uh, that advice back you gave, like how they can get involved, how the community can get involved, where can someone go if they have questions? Not so much like, hey, how do I do this? Like, obviously, there's Stack Overflow or forms for that. But like, if they're, if they're like, I'm interested in this, and you covered a couple of these things, Gavin, in this podcast called The Changelog, but I've got more questions where I can apply my ideas. I've got a couple ideas. Where does someone like that go? Do they come to you? Do they go to a forum? Where are places they can go and reach out to other, other community members of Ethereum? Um, so we have a, a fairly active um, Gitter room uh, for Parity, um, but there are also um, other Gitter rooms for various other Ethereum projects. Um, there are, uh, I, I think there's still a, quite an active Skype room and IRC uh, channels for Ethereum. Okay. Um, generally just like hash Ethereum on, on IRC, I think, on, um, on Freenode. Um, so th there are fairly uh, large open forums, but... 
uh, as it's such a growing uh, community now, it's um, it, you know it can be kind of hard to find any single place where you're going to find um, uh, everybody. It's uh, uh, you really have to sort of work out uh, where you want to go based upon what, what it is that you want to uh, get feedback on. So, um, but yeah, I, I would explore Gitter. That seems to be uh, a very um, very good place to be at the moment. Well, I see the Parity Gitter uh, room linked up on the Parity page too. So we'll link both of those up in the show notes. So that'll at least give the listeners a starting place for uh, hopping in and asking some questions back to the community and stepping in and finding ways to uh to to give some support here but gavin that is it for this show and jared great job on teeing this show up i mean i had a blast just kind of listening to a lot of this fascinating talk it's it seems like you know we always have these catch-up shows and i'm really hoping that like a year to a year and a half from now we can have gavin back on and seeing the praise of, of the of how the dow has you know worked itself out and all this trust has come back in and it's worth twice as much or whatever just you know, in other ways also that Ethereum is being used to provide marketplaces with, you know, new ways to move money around and stuff like that. So hopefully that is the future for all of this. But uh, that's it for this show. So say goodbye. Thanks, Gavin. That was a blast. Cool. Thanks a lot, guys. It was a good fun.